0: Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you, who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rindlisbacher, author of The Mission Driven Life and founder of The Mission Driven Mom. Thanks again to all of you who keep sharing out the podcast and reviewing it on your podcast apps and sharing it out on social media. It's such a huge help in growing our following and sharing out the message of Life Mission. I have been promising for quite a while to spend a few podcasts on feminism. And it's interesting because I had done a lot of research Feminism is a very modern term, uh, barely 100 years old, maybe. And so I had done research about what we usually think of as feminism that's kind of started in the 60s and 70s. But then there's people who talk about waves of feminism and go back to women getting the vote and suffrage and all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of had in my head at first that Maybe we would just spend time around all of that stuff. But then I got thinking, you know, feminism is really about womanhood, and it's about women in history. And I think I've said on this podcast before, my struggle to find stories of um, mission-driven moms, there's just hardly any of them out there. But the more I thought about this process of talking about feminism, the more it turned into talking kind of about women. And I decided that our first podcast in this series should probably begin at the beginning. (laughs) And, um, I don't, I I'm not any kind of an expert on Eastern studies or Eastern thought. The East does think very differently than the West. They have a different history, different traditions. My education has focused on the West and on the great ideas of the West. And so, of course, that's um, biblical, Jerusalem and Greeks and Romans, you know, coming forward, Europe and whatever. So I can give a frame of reference for women In Western history. I do not have, I do not claim to have extensive experience. I am not an expert on women's studies and all this kind of thing. (laughs) What I want to do is start out this feminism podcast series by just talking about women and I want to begin at the beginning of women in the West. Essentially Western culture and history is built on those two pillars. Ancient Greece and and the Bible, Judeo-Christian history and ethic, which really begins with the Old Testament and and the Jewish tradition and the ways that people thought based upon biblical beliefs. And of course, that goes back to a, a, a God and his laws that must be obeyed. And, and that's really the foundation of our moral purpose. And Greece is the foundation of our reasoning element of our society, reasoning things through and building order. Of course, that's where democracy was first tried. And then we you know had elements of republicanism tried. And so anyway, on a bit of a tangent, but the point is we wanna start there talking about women. Now you can go pick up a Bible, there are a handful of heroic women in the Bible, which is really, really cool, and they're heroes for the same reason that men are heroes. They're heroes because they stand up against wrong and risk their lives for truth and obey God no matter the cost and put God and family first. All of those things make them heroes. They're heroes for the same reason that men are heroes. And it's interesting because, you know, the Bible starts out with Genesis and of course the creation story and you've man's created first and then woman's created from his ribs and all that kind of thing. But then God says something very interesting. He kind of puts them both in front of him and he says, man is supposed to leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. He doesn't say anything about men being superior to women. He doesn't say anything about how um, they're inherently better, they're inherently more moral, they're inherently superior in his eyes somehow. They have different responsibilities, which is the history of fam, the story of family life and, and of cultural life. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So we kind of begin there. Certainly there are passages in the Bible that talk a lot about women obeying their husbands and talk about them kind of being subordinate to their husbands. There's different reasons for that. I'm not here to have, uh, I don't want to have a hash out session about all of those things. What I want to say is that the message today about Western history that students are hearing and that we're hearing in the media is that men always did everything in their power to push women down, never gave them any opportunities, never honored them, never thought highly of them, never talked about them, just pushed them into the home and made them fend for themselves. Looking at history, actual real original sources, tells a little bit different story it tells the story of an ongoing debate about what women's and men's roles should be and even right when we hit you know some of that is there's there's a tiny bit of discussion around that biblically there's definitely debate about that in ancient greece and i'm going to give you some sources around that it's really quite fascinating that the same kinds of things that we talk about today The same underlying principles and ideas are the same ones that were talked about anciently. And that's what you always find. Uh, Men and women, we inherently haven't changed a whole lot. What we do now, you know, women do have more opportunities than they've ever had and in a sense more rights than they've ever had. But they're also less protected than they've ever been and less cared for than they've ever been. So there's a trade-off. And that's something that we wanna look honestly at. I'm not trying to make the statement that things were better in the past or that they were, that we should go back to those times or that. I'm just simply wanna give you some original source material for you to think about. I want you to understand what things were really like in the ancient world, and then we'll talk about some of the sources between then and modern times, and then we'll get into some modern times, and we're going to take several months, maybe even most of the year, to go slowly through this process of talking about who, you know, women are, and how they've been seen all through history, and how they're seen today, and I don't want to be the definitive source on all of this. I don't want to tell you what to think. I don't want to tell you what conclusions to draw. I simply want to give you both sides of the story because one side of the story is being left out of the dialogue. And I want to give you some sources to ponder and to reference for yourself so that you can have a better understanding of all of these issues because they're really being kind of forced down our throats in a very aggressive way and you have the right and the need to be properly informed. So that's what I'm trying to do for you. And so I'm just going to throw some sources out to you, ancient sources, and we'll, we'll go from there and, and, and we'll do another one of these soon and come forward in time. So two ancient voices we hear a lot, Plato and Aristotle, I've quoted them in the past, I have read many of their works, not all of them, I'm not saying I'm a pronounced, you know, scholar, and I understand all the ins and outs, but I can tell you that they both wrote books on how government and society should be structured, and those books were very, very different, and there's a good case to be made that that what Plato put down was really the foundation of communism. and. That's to say that communism isn't anything new, and even in Plato's time, it wasn't anything new. His just happens to be one of the oldest sources we have on it. The way that society should be structured has always kind of been talked about in a variety of ways, and and his way was more of the communal way. Now, what's fascinating about that is that you would think that that would mean that he would talk pretty subversively about women, kind of put them down or whatever, but actually not so. So in in one of his dialogues, he has Mino says something like this, a woman's virtue, if you wish to know about that, may also be easily described. Her duty is to order her house and to keep what is indoors and obey her husband. So Plato's dialogues are usually Socrates and somebody else talking back and forth, sometimes a lot of other people. And so Mino is one of the other men in this dialogue with Socrates, and this is what Mino has said. And then Socrates says, who is really actually Plato's voice, he's the voice for Plato, you say, Mino, that there is one virtue of a man, another of a woman, another of a child, and so on. But will not virtue as virtue be the same whether in a child or a grown-up person, in a woman or in a man? I cannot help feeling, Socrates, so Mino answers him, I cannot help feeling, Socrates, that this case is different from the others. So he's like, well, kind of, maybe, but I feel like between men and women, virtue is different. And Socrates says, but why? Were you not saying that the virtue of man was to order a state and the virtue of a woman was to order her house? I did say so, Mino replies. And so Socrates answers, and can either house or state or anything be well-ordered without temperance and without justice? So of course, Meno says, certainly not. So then Socrates concludes, then both men and women, if they are to be good men and women, must have the same virtues of temperance and justice. And so he goes on to explain that everybody has to be virtuous in the same way and that men and women are actually quite equal. I have a lot of things down here. I'll put more quotes on the podcast page for you. I don't have time to go through all of them. But he talks about this ideal society that he wants to, that he thinks should exist. And he has these people as part of the society that he calls guardians. And the guardians are kind of just below the government and they keep order in the society and they're the leadership. They're setting the example and they, they have public virtue. They're willing to sacrifice themselves for the society. And because of that, they're supposed to be the best of the best. And they're supposed to be the best educated and the best trained. And what's fascinating about this society for, for Plato is that men and women are both guardians. Men and women have equal ability to rise to the occasion and to be the guardians of the society. Now, on the other hand... He has what he calls women in common, but it's not kind of exactly what you would think. It's kind of like, and I, I can't get into all the details, but basically um, you would kind of marry someone and have children, but you wouldn't know who the children were. The children would be in common, kind of like the women were in common, and you would all just kind of live communally. In other words, there wouldn't be families. For these guardians, he feels strongly that if they have emotional attachments to people that they won't be able to do the job they're supposed to do. And so it's the same for men as women, that they don't have these family ties. There aren't necessarily special privileges for men over women. They all live communally and they all kind of share everything. And he says, he says, if the difference between men and women consists only in women bearing and men begetting children, this does not amount to a proof that a woman differs from a man in respect of the sort of education she should receive men and women alike possess the qualities which make a guardian. They differ only in their comparative strength or weakness. And so he states several times that they, men are stronger. They really, they are stronger. They tend to be physically stronger and sometimes mentally, emotionally stronger because they don't cry as much as women and things like that. And, and, And there's definitely some truth in that. He's kind of looking at it from a distance. He wants women to he says, uh, while they are yet girls, they should have practice dancing and arms and the whole art of fighting. When grown up women, they should apply themselves to evolutions and tactics in the mode of grounding and taking up arms for a no other, if for no other reason, yet in case the whole military force should have to leave the city and carry on operations of war outside, that those who will have to guard the young and the rest of the city may be equal to the task. So he wants to give women the same education as men, and he also wants to, to train them in the art of war. Not necessarily to go to war, although as guardians, that may be necessary to fight alongside men sometimes, And he, want, but he wants to teach them tactics and he wants them, he feels like they can have the same ability to do those things. He even talks about how they're just as capable of like producing poetry and music and all that kind of thing as men. So kind of fascinating. We don't really like his societal structure. It's built around the individual with no family structure at all and everyone in common, at least I don't. But on the other hand, it's interesting that he is giving so much credence to the power of women. In contrast, you have Aristotle. Now, for Aristotle, the man is superior and then the female and then the slave. He says, clearly then, moral virtue belongs to all of them, the man, the woman, and the slave. But the temperance of a man and of a woman or the courage and justice of a man and the woman or the courage and justice of a man and a woman are not... a man and a woman are not as Socrates maintained the same. The courage of a man is how he is in commanding and of a woman in obeying. And Aristotle goes on to kind of beat down the claims that Plato has made and to say that society should be built on the, fam- on the family and that there are many difficulties in the community of women. That We need to base society on the family. And in order for the family, in order for society to thrive, there have to be robust families. And in order for families to thrive, people in the family have to have different responsibilities. And women need to obey their husbands because their husbands provide and protect for them, provide for them and protect them. He says that... Uh, inasmuch as every family is a part of a state and these relationships are the parts of a family and the virtue of that part must have regard to the virtue of the whole, women and children must be trained by education with an eye to the Constitution if the virtues of either of them are supposed to make any difference in the virtues of the state. So he still says women and children should still have some education. They should understand their Constitution. They should understand their society that they live in. And, and the way that that society is run, but they wouldn't have as an extensive an education as the men because they don't have to do the same kinds of things men do. But he does really believe that the women are inferior and that they need to obey their husbands. But he does have some really good things to say, like he who has never learned to obey cannot be a good commander. So everyone needs to learn to obey, not just the women, but the women are supposed to obey their husbands which is not necessarily a bad thing when your husband's a great guy. But anyway, I don't want to interject a lot of my opinion here, but just kind of giving you these sources. He says, everybody is more inclined to neglect the duty which he expects another to fulfill, which is also true if you don't have good delineated responsibilities, which is part of the breakdown of the family and current society. Even though women didn't like you know, being confined to the home, there was an orderliness that took place when women knew exactly what they were supposed to do and children did and men did. And we don't have that anymore. And so it's, it's a problem. As to adultery, let it be held disgraceful and let the guilty person be punished. So he wasn't wanting men to parade around on their women and all that kind of stuff. He wanted a strong, vibrant family organization where everybody knew their responsibilities and and everybody was educated to the level at which they needed to fulfill those responsibilities. So that's kind of interesting. Now, another ancient writer we don't hear a lot about is Plutarch. He wrote, there's a big fat book called Plutarch's Lives, which I actually have read. And it's the story of many great men in Roman and Greek history that did really important things. Now, what's fascinating is that what you do, what's little known is that he also wrote a book about great women. And this is not necessarily, it's hard to find online. I, it's not in the great book set. And I didn't know about it until recently. And he writes this book because he's at some really awesome woman's funeral and he's talking to a friend This book starts out with a note to this friend. He says, regarding the virtues of women, Clea, I do not hold the same opinion as Thucydides, for he declares that the best woman is she about whom there is the least talk among persons outside regarding either censure or commendation, feeling that the name of the good woman like her person ought to be shut up indoors and never go out. But to my mind, George appears to display better taste in advising that not the form, but the fame of a woman should be known to many. Uh, Best of all, to me, seems the Roman custom, which publicly renders to women as to men, a a, a fitting commemoration at the end of their life. So he loves that the Romans give these elaborate funerals to great women. He says, so when Leonidas, that most excellent woman, died, I forthwith had then a long conversation with you. Basically, this book is an outgrowth of that. He goes on to say, I would also say on that topic that men's virtues and women's virtues are one and the same. Kind of like I mentioned earlier that there are just certain virtues that are just true for everybody all the time. And he sees that. And even though there are some men in some societies in, in, that think that women can't be as virtuous as men, they can't rise to that level, Plutarch disagrees. He says there are just virtues and whoever decides to live those virtues is a virtuous person. And so he goes on to say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about these really awesome women that have done cool things. Sometimes it's a group of women. Sometimes he highlights a specific woman. He says, um, but with all this, let us not postulate many different kinds of bravery, wisdom, and justice. If only the individual. Uh, oh, I won't read the rest of that. So he says, if the individual basically is virtuous, then." That there's only one way to be brave or to be wise or to be just. Since, however, he goes on, many there are many deeds worthy of mention, which have been done by women, both in association and with other women and by themselves alone. It's not a bad idea to set them down so we can read about them. So he has this really cool book on the virtue, these virtuous women. And I want to just quickly mention one story that I really liked about this woman called Telesilla. She was, uh, he says she was a poetess. He says, of all the deeds performed by women for the community, none is more famous than the struggle against Cleomenes for Argos. So she was, it said that she was the daughter of a famous house. She was sickly in body. So she went to the god to ask about health. And the oracle told her to cultivate the muses. So in order to have better health, of course, we talked about this in a previous lecture, that the muses were um, seen as the, the, they were over the nine different elements of education basically, and that education was seen as divine and a way of honoring God. And so she was to follow the muses and educate herself in these different areas And so she followed the God's advice. I think it's fascinating that the first thing that she did was seek out God, the God in her time and place that she knew of. The oracle gave her a revelation, and she followed that revelation in educating herself. She devoted herself to poetry and music and was quickly relieved of her trouble. And she was greatly admired by the women for her poetic art. So then when Cleomenes, king of the Spartans, had slain many of the Argives, He proceeded against the city. This, some of the, came the the younger women to try for their country's sake to hold off the enemy. And so the men were off at war and this enemy king is coming to take them over. And so the women want to do something about it. Under the leadership of Telesila, they took up arms and taking their stand by the battlements, manned the walls all around so that the enemy were amazed. The result was that Cleomenes was repulsed with great loss. And the other king, Demaratus, who managed to get outside, as Socrates said, and gain possession, they drove him out. In this way, the city was saved. The women who fell in the battle, they buried close to the Argive Road. And to the survivors, they granted the privilege of erecting a statue of Ares as a memorial of their surpassing valor. So I just think this is really cool that... We have all these ancient writings. Some of them are about, you know, health. Some of them are about science. Some of them are about government and economics and science and all that kind of thing. And so often there's just, they're not talking about men or women. They're just talking about stuff. But there are these writings that mention women. Then there are really great men who are aware of women and who want to honor them and want to hold them up and want to make their, have their stories be told. Now, when Solon, of course, this is earlier than some of these writers, but when he was put into power, he improved the lot of women, he eased their burdens, he made it easier for them to marry, and he started punishing rape very severely to help protect women even more. And when you look at the code of laws for several different ancient civilizations, you see many protections for women when it's an honored, you know, king or magistrate or leader there's protection for women and an honoring of their virtue and their privacy, and especially around taking another man's wife. But just in general, there, there are many instances where women's rights in that sense, their, their privacy and their virtue and everything was honored. Definitely. I'm, I'm talking about Just instances here, we don't have all the information in and we see that this definitely wasn't always the case and they definitely didn't have the rights that we have. Again, just throwing things out there so that you can know that it's not just one dreary, awful story. There were men all throughout history who were trying to protect and honor women. So we've got these ancient playwrights, Euripides wrote uh, Andromache, she is the former wife of Hector. Hector had had affairs on her when they lost in the Trojan War and Hector was killed. She was given as a concubine. To, I don't know, I'm not sure how to say this, but it's Neoptolemus. Well, he has another wife who's sterile and Andromache bears him a son. And this wife, her, Hermione, is jealous. And so... Andromache realizes this is a problem and she sneaks off to the temple and won't leave. And so Hermione tracks her down and threatens to kill her and her son. And so it's really cool because Euripides has taken this honorable woman who's lived an honorable life, who has kind of been trampled on by Hector and now trampled on by this kind of new husband and wife, and she's never really had that fidelity that she wanted, but she's the heroine and she stands up for virtue and says some really amazing things to Hermione in defense of herself and principles and virtue. So I wanna just read you a couple excerpts from that play. She's defending herself to Hermione and she says, I'm one for sticking to my principles. I may have sons instead of you. Slaves everyone like millstones dragging after me. It wasn't drugs that made your husband shun you. The plain fact is you're hardly fit to live with. It's not beauty, but fine qualities, my girl, that keep a husband. Hermione is very upset about this. And she says to her, oh, well, you're just bragging as if you had a monopoly on virtue. And she goes on to say, loves all in all to women. But Andromache responds, and should be. So love should be everything to women, except it should be virtuous love. The other is foul. Hermione responds, here we don't live by your outlandish standards. And then Andromache says, my favorite phrase: shameful is shameful everywhere, Greece or not Greece. So that was really cool. I really loved. Um, that little excerpt from Euripides where he's got this honorable, virtuous woman who's the heroine of his story. He also wrote The Suppliant Women and The Trojan Women, which are largely about the plight of women when there's war. There's been war ongoing in Greece for many, many years, and the women are the biggest losers. And he uses his playwriting gifts... To bring their plight to the forefront and talk about the consequences to the women and children when men won't make peace and stop their warring. In fact, in the Trojan Women, the play begins with two gods, Athena and Poseidon. They're coming down from the heavens, um, and they're gonna—they're talking about the Trojan War. It's over now, and they're talking about kind of. All the destruction and Poseidon supported the Trojans, but Athena had supported the Greeks, except now at this point when they, the play starts, she has turned against them because Ajax, a Greek, Ajax, the Greek warrior, had raped the Trojan princess Cassandra in Athena's temple, and so even at this point, you know that's a that's super defiling, and she's a goddess. And that's a sacred place. And he has violated a woman there. And so she's totally removed herself from the side of the Greeks. And then the play goes on with all the hardships women experience, experienced as a result of the Trojan War. And it goes through different women and the hard things that they went through because of the war. There's also a play by Aristophanes. Now, he's not my favorite playwright. He's pretty crass and gross. So I'm not saying go out and read these, but uh, Lysistrat- Lysistrata is probably his most popular play and even though he's still talking about women as lower than men and and kind of making fun of them as being silly, inferior beings, his her- his the hero of the play is a woman and she actually is someone that he seems to respect and that he wants the audience to respect. She wants the war to end and she comes up with this brilliant plan about how women are going to withhold themselves from their husbands until their husbands ply for peace and it's a it's a comedy and it's pretty crass but the but the fact that he would use this woman and make her the heroine and somebody who is able to pull this off is pretty cool so actually the story of women and the things that they go through and their hardships was something that came up often in ancient Greece it was something that was talked about it was something that was debated. Uh, the stories of women and 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 their hardships and their triumphs was was something that was that was brought up. in Herodotus, uh, he mentions how in ancient Egypt, they had really different customs than many other places. And one of his comments I thought was interesting. He said, the women attend the markets and trade while the men sit at home at the loom. And he just thought that was that was fascinating. And I don't know a lot of Egyptian history. But he wrote that you know, way back then and he had better access to Egyptian history than we do now. So it must be true, uh, at least in part. So that's kind of fascinating. There's different customs in different places. And the last couple things I just want to mention about women in, in ancient times are the fact I brought it up earlier about the muses. All fields of knowledge belong to the muses. They are the wise women, the purveyors, not the authors of divine revelation. And we come to be more like God through gaining knowledge. He's all knowing, and so we must engage with these muses in the study of the arts and the sciences to become more godlike and to receive, you know, divine-like revelation. And it was women. It was they. The muses are women, and then the oracles were manned by priestesses. And so, I mentioned in an earlier podcast when I talked about um, the ancient faith that if the, no one ever made fun of the oracles, even people in, in that time, because they were just seen as holy. And there are, you know, many, many, many instances all throughout Greek history where people go to the oracles for wisdom, like people that we respect, that that we would look up to. And it's a priestess or priestesses that man these oracles. And it's the priestess that is the go-between between God and man. And it's the priestess that gives the divine wisdom to mankind that they're supposed to then go and obey. So the women had a lot of power in that way as well through the oracles and through being priestesses. So those are just some thoughts about women in ancient Western history and I just want you to think about. I'll put some sources and some links and some quotes for you on the podcast page if you want to go visit that. I'd love to hear your comments on the podcast page and in the Facebook group uh, about these ideas as we get started and kind of warm our minds up to to kind of opening up and thinking about the history of womanhood and feminism in Western history. So I hope that was a good beginning for you. Some food for thought. Please come ask more questions and let's engage in conversation around these ideas. Thanks so much for being here and listening to this podcast. And again, for for sharing it out and helping us grow. If you'd like to engage in the after the show discussion, please go join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group. And if you haven't listened to your free audio copy of The Mission Driven Life, head on over to themissiondrivenmom.com and claim that and get instant access and start learning those seven laws of life missions so that you can get on the mission path with us. Thanks for joining me and I will see you next time.